Welcome everyone to the Nomad on Fire podcast, the show all about the digital nomad lifestyle coupled with financial independence. We'll also be exploring tips and tricks on other lifestyle optimization strategies. I'm your host, Eric. Thanks for being here. Let's jump right in. All right, Teresa and Nick of Sailing Ruby Rose, welcome to the Nomad on Fire podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really excited to to be chatting to you today. I haven't had anyone on the podcast yet that has has sailed around the world, so this is really exciting. I'm definitely interested in kind of the the boat life, right? That's definitely you know kind of along with van life and stuff has really like grown in popularity, you know, in in recent years. So definitely want to get y'all's thoughts on just the lifestyle and the, in the movement and everything. So should be a lot of fun. But yeah, if if uh, y'all don't mind kicking us off uh, with just kind of what your background and and what your story is. Sure. So Nick has been sailing for about 15 years um, and I've been sailing for about 10 um, and that's when we met. So when we met, Nick kind of got me into sailing. Uh, We were living in London at the time and, you know, very kind of busy lives, as you can imagine. And then on the weekend, that was kind of our escape um, to the boat and we would drive like an hour out of London um, to this tiny little hamlet um, down like a little creek and it was a world away from London really. And we had a boat, uh, a 30-foot monohull and we used to go on the kind of club weekend cruises and weekend races, you know, whatever event they were holding. Uh, It was all very friendly, very relaxed and it was just kind of our hobby away from work. It was a nice antidote to, you know, London life. Um, so I got into sailing that way and Nick had obviously kickstart his sailing kind of passion a few years earlier. And then we, when we first met, we talked a lot about what we wanted from our lives, obviously, as a lot of new couples do. And we talked a lot about how we wanted a lifestyle change um, and we wanted that kind of sooner rather than later. And we talked about maybe taking a sabbatical and going travelling or we talked about, you know, traveling by van, living in a van, that kind of thing. We thought of lots of different options, but it seemed very natural to us to look at moving onto a boat because obviously, you know, it was like two kind of, you know, passions combining um, into one, you know, dream, I guess. Um, We knew that the boat that we had wouldn't be suitable. So we started to look at uh, a, a bigger boat, a better better built boat, um, a more suitable boat for living on full time. And we bought Ruby Rose, which was a Southerly 38 monohull, so 38 foot monohull in 2012. And then three years later, you know, it took three years to kit her out and to get her ready and to get ourselves ready and to, you know, kind of extract ourselves from our lives. And then in 2015, in May 2015, we left the UK um, on Ruby Rose and we sailed south. Uh, we ended up in the Caribbean. We sailed all around. We spent five years uh, doing uh, what we call like an Atlantic circuit. So we crossed the Atlantic from Europe to the Caribbean. We spent a few years in the Caribbean, the Bahamas, the US East Coast, Bermuda, and then we sailed back to Europe, um, back across the Atlantic uh, into the Mediterranean, and then we actually took our boat through the French canals, which is quite an unusual thing to do um, in a fiberglass boat. There's lots of, you know, canal boats doing it, obviously, barges, but we took our sailing boat through, which was quite the adventure. It was like one of the 
more crazy things we've done, um, but so fun. And uh, we ended up sailing back to UK last year during, um, you know, the worst of the pandemic. Um, and we sold Ruby Rose actually in September, not because we're giving up, but because we are um, in the process of building a new catamaran, so a 45-foot catamaran that we're actually collaborating with the, the catamaran manufacturer manufacturer on so yeah the next chapter is looming at the moment amazing such such a cool story i i love it um i kind of want to jump back to like thinking you said as a new couple you were you were talking about kind of what what kind of lifestyle do you want to have right i guess kind of in my own experience and from talking to to other folks you know sometimes it can be a combination but sometimes it's you really like want something new and it's kind of exciting or you're kind of want to get away from a certain situation. I guess in, in y'all's situation, was it more kind of that passion and excitement for a different lifestyle or kind of just stress and unhappiness and like day-to-day jobs? What was kind of the main, main driver there for that change? So I think what Therese admitted to kind of like tell you is that when we met, we were backpacking through India. So it's not as if we kind of like met in a fancy cocktail bar after <laughs> after a meeting. We both independently, obviously from South Australia, I was in London, just, you know, picked a tour to kind of like go overland from New Delhi to Kathmandu, um, you know, roughing it essentially. And we both met on the same, on the same journey. So that obviously makes it, you know, much easier where you come from a like-minded, uh, you know, you meet in, 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 a, in a situation where you're traveling independently and off the beaten path pathway. So we met doing that, went back to our, our you know, our white collar jobs in, you know, other ends of the world. And I guess then, you know, from our point of view, we travel, I speak from, from myself, but I'm sure, you know, Therese will chime in if I got this wrong. We traveled for enjoyment. It, it was, we were never... I've never been into the kind of like going on a holiday and going to an all-inclusive hotel and, you know, sitting by the pool. And I always wanted to experience life as near to local life as I can. I mean, you know, there'll be people that are listening to your podcast that will understand probably the hypocrisy of like, you know, essentially affluent white folk going to like underdeveloped countries and, you know, uh, vlogging about it. I, I get the, I get where that comes from, but, you know, there is no perfect solution. So from our point of view, what we found is that trying to get back to the, the best way to kind of engage and enjoy a community or culture is to not have the sanitized version. That's the first thing. So you don't kind of like sit on a tour bus and look out the window. And the second thing is we found that, you know, the longer you spend in a place, the, the more you get involved with it. And that's been everywhere we've been, you know, we, you know, if you talk to the locals, you involve yourself with the locals, you stay for a couple of three weeks, so you become a slightly more familiar face. People become more open to, to you and, you know, accepting tour, not, yeah, tourists or travellers. So being on a boat for us meant that we were not going to be confined to, like, a couple of days in a location or a couple of weeks in a location. And, you know, while we were touring the Caribbean, we would spend, you know, in one case, we spent nine months in one on one island just kind of like bumming around and you know it's kind of the island was Antigua actually and it was Antigua is pretty geared up for for tourists and for cruise liners and it's we stayed there just you know on our little boat you know anchor getting 
looking at Betty, you know, for hurricane season to kind of sort stuff out there. But the main town in St. John, you know, we stayed so long, it got to kind of May, June, and there were still um, like cruise ships coming in, but it was getting close to hurricane season. And it was also mango season. So, you know, the reason I'm telling you the story about the mangoes is that all these old ladies, and they tended to be old ladies, would sit by the side of the road with a banana leaf, like with piles of mangoes that they picked off their own trees, um, just, you know, literally in the dirt. And you go up and they say, do you want a mango? Do you want to buy mangoes? And yeah, and eventually, because, you know, who doesn't like mangoes, you know, you ask <laughs> the price and they're like, ah, oh, you know, it's $10, 10 US dollars for three mangoes. And eventually I'm like, we live here, like, Cut it out, you know, it's not $10 <laughs> mangoes. And after a while, because they kind of saw us traipsing around all the time, they're like, oh, it went down to like 5 EC or 3 EC, which was literally 5% of the price. So I kind of, there is a, there is a tipping point everywhere that we've been where either people understand that you want a different experience, that you don't want the sanitized experience, or you stay long enough and it eventually becomes you know, you 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 get get a, into a different headspace regarding traveling. So yeah, yeah, and and I think to answer your question, I don't um, I don't remember wanting to escape anything. Um, I I love London. I still do, and I did then. I mean, it's you know a hectic lifestyle when you know you're living in a big city and and your life is essentially going to work all the time. That is what you live for to, to work um, and everything revolves around work um, and you get a little bit of spare time on the weekend um, but even that's like jam-packed full of things to do um, so that was enjoyable you know to, to an extent it wasn't what what I saw myself doing forever and ever and, and I think that Nick and I were on the same page there um, but I don't know I, I remember even when I was a kid I always had this desire to travel the world and I just always felt like there was I mean, I'm Australian so it might come from the fact that Australia as a country is so isolated um, but I always have had this kind of yearning to to see the world and to me it's you know it's such a big world out there there's so much to see there's so much to explore and to me it would be such a shame to reach the end of my life having not seen you know as much of it as I could so that was I guess as my motivation I really and I loved the idea of the adventure of doing it by boat as well because you know I I always think back to these historic kind of figures these you know true adventurers and they you know really had no idea what they were doing they were you know discovering um, for the first time you know areas that no one from that country had been to before and uh, you know it's just like in Australia for example you know the, the the um, English people who came here to, to colonise Australia, you know, they would, like, trek across, try and trek it across the country. I mean, they almost all, like, perish doing it. But it's just this, like, sense of adventure and sense of wanting to kind of see what's beyond the horizon, I think, that really appeals to me. I love it. Yeah, I think, yeah, travelling in general, right, the sense of adventure. But I do feel like travelling by boat would kind of ramp that experience up, right, in terms of the, yeah, the sense of adventure. That's cool. Yeah. Um, kind of jumping back to like to making that transition. Like, what was the initial plan? You mentioned like, was it at first? Was it going to be like a, a gap year, or like a year long sabbatical, or or what was that kind of plan? What did did you have like I guess budgeted for? Um, can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. So we didn't really have a plan. We knew that we wanted to kind of try this out. We really, really hoped that we would love it and that it would become a long-term thing. But it was such a 
huge change of lifestyle going from living in in London very busy to moving onto a small boat just the two of you um you know going from having you know all this like an apartment full of stuff to living on a small boat and having to live quite a minimal lifestyle um it it was a big change and we knew that it would be quite the adjustment so we tried not to put too much pressure on ourselves at the beginning we it was kind of a wait and see how we go approach um, that being said, we kind of threw ourselves right into it because we decided the first within the first six months of setting off that we would cross the Atlantic. Um, so as in six months, less than six months after we left, we we were crossing the Atlantic. And that was probably, I don't want to say we bit off more than we could chew, but it was definitely a big <laughs> ask. Um, it put us under quite a bit of pressure, probably unnecessarily, but it resulted in us getting to the Caribbean and you know, I, I think that, I don't know, I'm, I'm a fan of jumping in the deep end and just, you know, <laughs> you are the super sink, right? So, um, yeah, and then it became clear pretty quickly within the first 12 months that this was something that we were definitely wanting to do long term and we had to think about how that was going to look, you know, what that was going to look like. So I guess we, yeah, we, we, we didn't have any plans, but we had hopes that we would be able to do this long term. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a gap year. I think we've been pretty fortunate to meet some inspiring people as we've travelled. And before we've travelled, and inspiration doesn't always come from iconic figures or from you know people that you look up to. Sometimes you just get inspired by other travellers. <clears throat> we were fortunate enough when Teresa and I met to meet another couple who were on a gap year. I mean, they were at a gap year in their 40s. It's not like they were students, but they were, they were taking a year out. And they still remain very, very close friends of ours, you know, 10, 12 years on. The inspiration from them came from the fact that they had um, negotiated a year from work to do their travels. And, you know, the, Matt, the, our friend, you know, we met him, you know, regularly after they finished their travels. And what he said was for the first six months, everything was brilliant because he was on the kind of like the outbound leg. When it got to the, the last six months, he realized he was on a, you know, the clock was ticking down and it, there was a point that, it spoiled his adventures because he knew that he was on, he had to go back. So when we left, we kind of left with one eye on, yeah, we we can take our lives back if it all falls apart, but we're not intending to take it back. We don't want to have a, a finite time. And, you know, I, I think we've always tried to hedge our bets wherever possible. When Therese moved to, to the UK for us to be together, she negotiated a year off work. So if it hadn't worked out, then she could have gone back to work. We had enough money to last us, I think, probably two to three years if there'd been no major incidents. And that gave us time to kind of really settle into it and to have a good run of it, not the the 12 months, which kind of would give you like six months on and then six months looking forward to coming back. So that was our plan. And as I said, we, we we worked financially towards being able to have more than two years away. Awesome. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense with like just having that year time frame and really enjoying the first part, but then just kind of in the back of your head, knowing, knowing that you're going back. Um, how about then starting the YouTube channel? Did, did y'all start that right away or did you give it some kind of time to adjust into the lifestyle? And then you were like, this is awesome. We should share our story with everyone or kind of how, how, uh, was that transition? So I really wish one of our regrets is that we didn't start the YouTube channel straight away. Um, at the time, it didn't actually occur to me. I, I had I, I love writing, um, so I had a blog instead. And this was, I don't know, I feel like things changed pretty quickly. When we left, blogs were actually really, really popular. They were kind of YouTube, 
in the sailing world was in its infancy and blogs were the big thing. So I wrote a blog, um, which, you know, no one read. <laughs> I read. <laughs> I enjoyed it. And my family read it, um, but no one else read it. And um, But it wasn't really to, to kind of get any, you know, attention. It was just to document our adventures and to give me something creative to do. And I had a, um, a kind of Nikon SLR that I just bought. And so I was taking lots of photos and getting into photography and I was really enjoying um, kind of running the blog, really. And then about 18 months into um, our sailing adventure, you know, we sailed across the Atlantic, we got to the Caribbean. And as Nick alluded to before, we were in the middle of the Caribbean when it was coming up to hurricane season. So because of insurance, uh, the insurance our boat, we had to leave the boat um, in a boatyard on the hard. We couldn't leave it in the water. So essentially that would make it really hard to live on the boat. So we decided to take a break and come and see family. You know, we hadn't seen our family for 18 months. So we left the boat for hurricane season stored in Antigua. And while we were away, it was actually really good because it gave us a bit of breathing space and it gave us time and a moment to kind of assess what we were doing. And I said, look, you know, I'd really like to start a YouTube channel because I just feel like I need something more creative to do. And also I was finding it hard to explain either through kind of phone calls or through my blog what our lives were like and our family and friends, they just didn't seem to kind of really get it. I could tell that from the questions that they were asking. Um, so I thought, you know what, putting making some videos and putting them on YouTube, that sounds like fun. So we bought a little camera. It was like a $300 Sony that was kind of, you know, there have been like three models since this model. <laughs> so it was an old model. <laughs> uh, we bought like a little microphone that costs $30 from Amazon. And um, I just, we had a 10-year-old MacBook that was miraculously still running. And so I just downloaded iMovie. And so that's that was kind of a bit of a hobby uh for kind of I guess about six months after we got back to the boat the following year making videos and putting them up on YouTube and you know I remember very clearly the first time we got a comment it was on our first video uh from someone who didn't know us just a random person and it was a lovely comment saying something like you know really enjoyed this episode like keep them up can't wait to see episode number two and I just thought, oh, my God, people are watching this. People I don't know, people I've never met before. And that was a real kind of, I don't know, the penny dropped and I just realised that, you know, if people, other people were watching the videos, then really I should be making the videos with them in mind and thinking about what people might like to watch and trying to improve that viewing experience and trying to improve the quality of the content um, so that they would enjoy uh, the viewing experience even more. So from that kind of shifted our um, focus uh, to creating videos for YouTube that were more kind of quality-minded um, and also giving information to people that they would find genuinely useful. And, you know, we mentioned earlier, um, I think before we, we started the podcast, that you have seen the episode where we talk about our budget. And that was that video is three years old or something now, but that was the first video that we made where we sat down with the intention of actually giving people some information that we thought would be useful rather than just kind of documenting our, our daily lives. And the reaction to that video was so positive and we just, I just remember being so satisfied that we had actually 
given people information that they hadn't really had good access to before. Um, and that, I guess, was the inspiration for a lot of yeah. other content that we've filmed since. That's kind of been our mantra since to, to provide good quality content, but also good quality information to allow people to make informed decisions about perhaps moving on to a boat themselves, making this kind of lifestyle change that we've made. Um, and that's, that's I guess, uh, where our, you know, inspiration comes from now. Awesome. So that, that video was kind of the catalyst there. Was then, then was it pretty like organic growth after that? Or did you have like, besides that video, any certain one that kind of just blew up and your subscribers, you know, grew exponentially or how was kind of that growth process of, of the channel? Yeah, well, any <laughs> any YouTuber will tell you that it's um, it's a roller coaster, and you have these uh, these kind of weeks or months or sometimes you know longer where you get really good growth and then you get times where it stagnates. That video about how much it was titled, how much does it cost to sell around the world, that gave us a lot of growth really quickly, and that was great. Um, it coincided with the time that we were coming to the US and a lot of our audience were American. So we actually had an opportunity to meet a lot of our followers, which was a really amazing experience um, to actually meet people in person that were following our YouTube adventures. And since then, we've kind of, you know, we've seen, as I said, some stagnation and also some, some really good growth. I think that it all comes back to the quality of the content that you're putting out and not just kind of does it, you know, is the videography good, is the editing good, that kind of thing, not just that, although that's important, but also, as I said before, the quality of the information. And we've found that times where we have the most um, kind of momentum are times where we're putting out information that is truly useful to people. And a good example of that is a couple of years, years ago, we, um, about two years ago, actually, almost exactly, we decided to move from a monohull to a catamaran. We knew that we had a huge amount of research to do because obviously big purchases or any purchase requires a lot of research, but particularly big purchase like this. And in the world of sailing, you do your research, not just online, but also you go to boat shows. So you can actually go on board all these boats and see for yourself what they're like um, in real life. But prior to going to boat shows, you know, you want to be organised. These are busy events and you want to know what you're looking for. And so it makes sense that you do a lot of online research beforehand and that's what we started doing ourselves. But what we found was that actually there wasn't the information online that we're looking for. So we were wanting to do these kind of online boat tours and online boat reviews, video reviews, but they, they didn't exist to kind of the standard that we wanted. And so we saw an opportunity there to create some um, content, but also to create like an online resource for people who were in our position looking for a catamaran to live on and, and sail on. Um, and we created a, a series called um, our catamaran review series, Search for Perfect Catamaran. And that was uh, really, I think, well received by a lot of people. And we get comments all the time saying how people have enjoyed that series so much. And uh, yeah, that kind of was another catalyst actually, because that, that led on to us collaborating with a catamaran manufacturer. And now Ruby Rose 2 will be one of the catamarans that we, um, or from one of the manufacturers that we reviewed. So that, that was really, um, yeah, a turning point. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to ask you a little bit more about Ruby Rose uh, too in, in a little bit. Um, but something that you mentioned earlier, it, it just kind of started as like a passion project, like a creative outlet, something to work on. Um, I had a similar experience myself, like when I left um, my job and, and started traveling, just working on, you know, Nomad on Fire on the blog and the podcast was just a great creative outlet and, you know, a way to work on something that I really enjoyed and be able to make progress and also collaborate with others. It was, it was a great kind of creative outlet for me. So I would definitely, you know, anyone that's, that's in that sort of situation, I would definitely recommend having some sort of, you know, creative outlet like that. Did it, um, I guess what's, what's your kind of maybe daily or weekly process on the channel now, then did it kind of morph that you had, you know, you know, a set kind of list of, of different content that you wanted to get out there? Like, is, do you film every day for it or, uh, what's kind of the, the general strategy there? Um, it's changed. So we, uh, when we started getting traction, by the time we got to the US, which was about <clears throat> six months after we started the channel, we'd seen this massive growth spurt. And we just really didn't know what to do with our time. Our time management wasn't brilliant, or mine wasn't. So we kind of ended up getting burnt out. You ended up just kind of like blurring the lines between work and not and not working. And it got to the point where that kind of blurring of the lines reduced our enjoyment of both. So I think we, we left the boat for a couple of months, went away and said, look, how are we going to do this? Like, what is, we can't sail full time, you know, sailing a boat and running a boat is a full time job in itself. You know, it's like a, it is like a needy child that continually needs attention and repair. And we came back to it with a kind of, uh, kind of a, a more structured way of, of working. Um, and that is, that's how we've evolved. And now I think we try and find set times for filming we try and make it organic. So staged shots are very rare. So we do film what we're doing, but if we're going sailing on say, I don't know, for a couple of three weeks in those, in that three week period, we'll try and film every day, but then we'll find time to not film and have a week or two to, to just not film to, to edit because, you know, from our point of view, and we've learned most of our lessons the hard way, you know, once you've been on the road for three or four weeks, you have to get off the boat and it just even just, you know, we got off a boat, uh, two days ago, we've got like a terabyte of footage to upload to a cloud so it can't get lost or damaged or wet. And then we've got this whole editing process. And, you know, Therese can take 40 hours to edit a 20-minute video. So seeing as we have to put one of those videos out a week, um, that's 40 hours a week you have to put into just the editing process. And then there's the social media and the social media management, plus answering emails, plus building a new boat, plus working with new sponsors and everyone that we're working with for that new boat. I think normally we start work. I mean, I started work at four o'clock this morning. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of like slightly insomniac anyway. So I kind of get up at four, stay up for a few hours just to catch the end of like Northern Hemisphere um, peak time. And we normally finish work at 10 p.m. But it's not as if, you know, we're not like mining salt in a Siberian, you know, gulag. It's it's a pretty, it's a lovely job. And, you know, I used to be a dentist, so I will take this over pulling teeth any day. Um, but we, I think something that we've had to actively do is, is, is work on time management. Yeah, I think the different, as Nick said, differentiating between um, our lives and our work is actually quite difficult. But it's very, very important because when your work is essentially documenting your life, then 
as Nick said, the lines get very, very blurry. Um, so you need to create boundaries and you need to uh, dedicate time to work. And I think that changing the way that we talked about our YouTube channel was important because, you know, you had to think of it as a job. It's a very enjoyable job. It's, it's lovely, but it is still work. Um, and to think about it in that context and to talk about it using that, those, you know, that kind of terminology I think changes the way that you process what you're doing. And it, it helps a lot, as I said, not just in terms of like practical time management, but also in terms of kind of wrapping your head around balancing everything and making sure that everything stays enjoyable and that you kind of remain um, kind of uh, fresh and, you know, your creative juices like keep going and, you know, you're still kind of bringing passion um, to your work because once you start getting tired and, and you know, it starts to kind of become too much and you start to not enjoy the process, then that comes across like straight away 100% in, in the videos. Uh, and you said before, like, what do you kind of plan what you're doing? We, we've had to plan way more over the last six, uh, sorry, 12 months than we normally do um, because of COVID and the fact that we have been spending less time on board than we normally would. Um, so you can see right now we're in an apartment. Um, we sold Ruby Rose last September um, because we're waiting for a new boat to be built and we're still in that kind of process now. So we're sailing boats now, but we're not living full time on a boat this year. But we will be moving on to Ruby Rose 2 at the end of this year. And so, yeah, things need to stay flexible because what works for us one year won't work for us the other year in terms of our kind of planning and time management. So, yeah, it's all very flexible. Yeah, I think those are those are really important insights. I've heard in maybe like a a different context in terms of, you know, other like, uh, like travel YouTubers. And if, if they don't find a good balance, right, then they're not enjoying either aspect, right? They're not enjoying traveling and living in the moment because they're thinking of, oh, I have to film this or, oh, that would make a great video or this or that. But then, you know, vice versa on the other side, right? So I think it is really important to to draw those boundaries and, and have that that balance. I think that's a great, great takeaway. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, right? So you mentioned, you know, sailing is like, is a full-time job in and of itself. I don't, I'm not sure I didn't, uh, you might already have a video on this. Any kind of like, maybe like relationship tips, right? Like this is a big lifestyle change, a big undertaking that the two of you took together. I know from, you know, personal experience, just, just traveling with, with my partner in, in the past, you know, it's a, it's a big adjustment, right? If you're, uh, it was our first time living together and then traveling and everything else. I, I'd have to imagine sailing, right? It's, it's compounded, right? Cause there's so many additional things to work on, right? You're in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, for maybe 14 days or, or something with, with just the other person, right? Any, <laughs> any, uh, any kind of tips for anyone like really interested in this lifestyle and on kind of how to balance that? Well, funny you should say that because we have been thinking about making a video out of this <laughs> subject uh, for a while and we keep on stalling in the planning stage because it's such a huge unworldly subject and we're still thinking about how to tackle it in a way that you know would be useful to people 
instead of just kind of rambling on for ages about like our relationship, <laughs> which I'm not sure is really what we want to do. But yes, very challenging. Probably, I think the biggest single challenge to boat life that, that doesn't get talked about. People are very keen to discuss in the planning stages what solar panels they should put on their boat or, you know, what kind of water maker they should put on or what set, what boat they should buy in the first place, you know, the kind of practical or logistical elements, where they should sail, what they should do. But uh, these are not challenges that really are going to make or break your experience. But what will make or break your experience, and I have witnessed this firsthand, not once, not twice, many times, unfortunately, is the interpersonal relationships on board. Um, and Nick and I definitely went through like a journey uh, first kind of 12 months. It was, it was an adjustment. And the thing about boat life, which is different to living, like travelling more traditionally or van life or whatever, is that on a boat there is only and can ever only be one person in charge. The skipper is always in charge and that is not something that we kind of choose. It's just a fact of kind of maritime life. That is, There's one captain, one skipper, that person is in charge. And people who maybe are new to sailing, I've seen a lot of kind of conversation about how especially a couple that come into sailing at the same time have the same experience level have the same kind of knowledge base have done the same courses they refer to themselves as as both you know they're both the skipper on board and I think that's a lovely sentiment and I encourage that sentiment but unfortunately the reality is that there is only one skipper um so that adds a whole new dynamic to a relationship for to have one person in charge from the sailing and the boating point of view for us that's nick um and you know he's got the more experience by a considerable degree and um he's more highly qualified than i am uh i definitely like to think i bring something to the table you know and it, it kind of it it makes life sometimes a little bit more um tense than it otherwise would be in a different situation but yes nick relationship <laughs> advice yeah look it's uh, it, it is hard because you you know it, it was it, it for us it hasn't been hard i think when it's been hard moments yeah when we lived in london there was a time for about a year before we set off that therese was doing shift work um so she would go to, I would literally, I'd go to work at 8 a.m. and I'd get back at 9 p.m. And she would go to work at about 7 p.m. and get to bed about 3, 4 a.m. So literally there was, she would climb into bed as I would leave. Um, I, you know, we'd have literally two hours in the same bed together and that was five days a week. So going from really rarely seeing each other to 24 hours a day. And the thing about boats, for the obvious reason, is when you're at sea, you can't go for a walk. You know, you can't go and, you know, go to go and get yourself a coffee somewhere. You are, you have to learn a huge amount of tolerance. Um, you have to learn to just modify behaviour. Like coping strategies yeah. for and conflict and, like, good conflict resolution and communication skills. They sound, like, really boring, but actually it's important. they're very important. And you also have to find time for you in a very small space mm. and that is time that you kind of you protect in whatever way like for Therese it's reading for me it's music there's a lot of other kind of activities that we tend to just you know 
get on and do on our own. And we accept that those times are kind of like protected time. So, you know, if she's reading a book, I don't jump up and down and say, oh, I want to do this now or that now. If I'm playing my guitar or listening to music, she leaves me alone. And that was like yoga that you occasionally yeah. like, there's no room on the boat. So I'm trying to do yoga or whatever. And Nick has to get out of the boat, you know, like he's <laughs> stepping over me. It can be. <laughs> but um, as I said, it's, we, we are in a position now where, you know, it, now that we can live on a boat for obviously like eight, nine months without getting off, you know, being in a, in a flat or an apartment like this is easy. And it has taught, it, it's made our relationship invariably far, far stronger than it ever was. And it was pretty damn strong before we got on the boat. So we have been fortunate, unlike many other couples who we've met in the Caribbean, in Europe, who finds this interpersonal thing um, very, very difficult, especially where the what their previous lives, they were so dependent on their social network to kind of like provide a stress relief to what was going on in their relationships. So, you know, we've had lots and lots of people, you know, you meet up in cruises, forums or, you know, cruises, bars, and, you know, sometimes complete strangers, like their opening gambit will be about their husband or their wife or their girlfriend or boyfriend. And they're just so desperate to like talk to someone who isn't their significant other so yeah, I, I, it is definitely a challenge, but it's um, it's and it's something that, as I said, there was an adjustment period yeah. um, when we first moved onto the boat. But my advice, honestly, would be communicate because if you don't communicate, then nothing will change and you you won't be happy. So I think you have to communicate. And actually, without kind of like throwing the gender, you know, my gender hat into the ring here, it's normally the men that cause the problem. It really is nine times out of ten, it's the male. Uh, you know, the, the the men in the relationship that are, that that are the problem. They don't listen, and they don't communicate. They don't communicate, and it tends to be from what we've experienced through interaction with hundreds of couples. They don't listen to what their partner wants, and that involves mostly what their plans are. You know, because the man tends to be the skipper more often than not. And he'll say, well, we're going to go from here to here because the weather's right and there to there because the weather's right. And in three months, we need to be at this location. And the complete loss of control for the other partner is very, very difficult to deal with. And we've, you know, it causes so much stress. I would say that, yes, in addition to my tip about communicating, my other number one tip is to be for both kind of people on board to be equally contributing to not only like the lifestyle in general, but also the decisions around the lifestyle. Because as Nick said, it's it can be kind of you can have to make difficult decisions. You know, do we live in this weather or do we leave, do we wait? Uh, you know, what about hurricane season? What about the prevailing winds? It's there's a lot of external factors at play when you're when you're sailing, and sometimes you have to make decisions that are you know inconvenient, and both people have to feel. Imp- power to kind of contribute to that decision making so i think that's really important yeah definitely a a really interesting and and very important topic you all should definitely make a video about about this and kind (laughs) of share some (laughs) some lessons learned i think i feel like that would be i feel like that would be popular especially if it's not you know if it's a common problem but not often talked about i feel like that would be you know that would be really good to get y'all's insights on it um 
shifting gears, so uh, I think we kind of mentioned it. Um, I watched the video on on kind of the cost, yeah, we and we talked about it a little bit. Um, I can definitely link up the video in, in the show notes so people can check it out. But I mean, I guess any kind of high level uh, tips, I don't want to rehash what, what you already covered in the video, but if you had to give just maybe one or two kind of top tips for like cost savings or anything um, in that regard, what, what would those be? Um, I think I'm going to kind of like take this back one step and just go through our entire mantra as to why we left, why we decided to go sailing, why we decided not to come back, why we decided to budget. And really, the entire thing in one sentence was to try and reduce our stress as, as much as possible. And so when it comes to the financial aspects of this, we decided to put ourselves in a position where we weren't financially overstretched. We saved like mad for, for three or four years, maybe longer, like um, not go, you know, not getting takeaway, you know, when we could, when we had food in there, not buying clothes when, you know, we knew we were going to leave. So we set off with a pot of money and that pot of money wasn't the biggest pot in the world, but it was enough to get us through uh, 18 months, two years with slush fund so that if something went wrong on the boat, like badly wrong, we weren't going to bankrupt ourselves. Where if someone got sick at home and we had to fly back in an emergency, we weren't going to bankrupt ourselves and we had that money. And so from our point of view, the way we looked at our finances were, let's just have enough for two years so that we've got a part A, which is our living expenses and what we want to kind of go and live on. And part B is the emergency kitty for stuff we can't plan for. And I think that's kind of like how we looked at our finances, isn't it? Yeah. And sure. so tips um, are really to kind of try and reduce your stress and do what you can to manage the things that keep you up awake at night. From our point of view, we've met hundreds, if not thousands of couples, and everyone's budget is different. You know, some people want to go and eat in restaurants every night. Some people, you know, live very frugally. We have a couple of very, very, very good friends who live for six months on four bucks a day. And that was for two of them with a dog. So, you know, and we've got other friends that have an almost infinite budget. Um, I think it really, the tip that I would probably give you is, apart from have those two parts A and part B of your budget, I think another tip would be to kind of try and manage a lifestyle that is slightly similar to the one that you left. Otherwise, sometimes the difference is going to be too great. I mean, we didn't, we weren't eating out in restaurants all the time in London. We would, we cook at home. We're pretty much into cooking. We tend to like trying local produce where, so we don't go to a foreign supermarket and then decide we have to buy imported, you know, food and vegetables. We eat locally. We travel, we've met traveling. So eating street food is something that we've always done and actually prefer doing to kind of like you know, if you go to, you know, you, you go around Bangkok, you can spend like a hundred bucks in a restaurant or you can spend less than a dollar in, a, in street food. And I can probably get, take you to give you the Pepsi challenge that the street food will taste better. So from our point of view, we knew that we wouldn't have to have a, a huge budget to kind of replicate the life we had on land. Yeah. And I think that um, other things that we see people, people's budget kind of, you know, differing on is, is stuff like, I mean, boats are very expensive for, yeah, no, they are. They are very expensive, generally speaking. They're relatively expensive to buy, but also they're pretty costly to keep running. Um, and generally speaking, if you buy like an older, cheaper boat, then your running costs are going to be proportionally probably 
reasonable because it will need so much maintenance um, on it and, and lots of upgrades and lots of kind of things will break and you'll need to replace them, that kind of thing. That being said, a big expensive boat is expensive as well because you need to pay for like insurance and all these more complicated systems obviously need more maintenance as well and a lot of costs are associated with that. So the boat that you buy will have a bearing on the ongoing costs of your boat. But certainly it's true across the board um, that, you know, if you are the type of person who is willing to get their hands dirty and do work themselves, um, like kind of either get, if they don't know how to do it, then get advice from But In an anchorage or in a marina, there's always lots of people who are willing to lend a hand or give advice. So just ask for help if you don't know what to do. Um, and, and to do that kind of work themselves rather than outsourcing it and, and paying other people to do that work, um, that will save you a lot of money. Uh, but as Nick says, you know, you kind of have to accept that if you are going from having quite an extravagant lifestyle on land to having a very, very frugal, minimalist lifestyle on a boat, then you're probably not going to enjoy yourselves. So, yeah, you kind of have to be realistic about your expectations and what you can and can't afford, I think. For sure. Yeah. I love that y'all both mentioned the the lifestyle piece of it. I think that's an important transition, right? To anyone that's, that's going to be moving to, you know, a more um, kind of traveling full-time type of lifestyle, adjusting from, Hey, we're not on vacation. We're not on holiday. You know, I can't just buy all you know, go out to eat every meal or buy all these drinks at the bar, right? Like this is my new lifestyle. Like it probably should match, you know, right around where I was. I don't need to like try to inflate it at all. Yeah. I think that's a great, great tip. Um, next question I had, um, how about last year for, for COVID? Like where were you all when, when kind of COVID really started getting bad and then, you know, um, where did you, where did you go kind of, you know, during, you know, middle of last year when, when everything was getting really bad? Honestly, we've been so lucky. Um, we should go and buy a lottery ticket, you know, just to kind of try and keep perpetuating the cycle of luck. Um, so last year, and it kind of the, tw- the last 12 months has gone past in such a blur that as I tell this story, I kind of think, well, really did this all happen? But it got, we were, I was, we were in Australia in February last year visiting Teresa's parents. I flew back to, our boat was in France. Um, and I remember flying back to France just to get the boat ready for the season. Teresa stayed on in Australia just to spend some more time with her parents. And I remember phoning home. I remember phoning back to my parents in London. And my mum said, look, I think you should come home. Like this, this, this flu thing's quite bad. And I'm like, shut up. It's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Like, honestly, it's just like, just, just the news. Yeah. It's just the media. (laughs) I went into the Marina office in France and um, I knew the Marina owner and he refused to shake my hand. And I'm like, all right. And he's like, no COVID. So I sat and thought about it. I thought, well, look, my parents are in their seventies. You know, the weather here is pretty miserable. I'll just get the train back home. So, you know, the train from Western France to to London is about 12 hours. So I got the train home, you know, went home. And then Therese kind of phoned me and said, look, this COVID thing's getting bad. I think I'm going to stay in Australia for another three or four weeks. Let it all blow over. Because in three or four weeks, it'll all sort it out and I'll come back (laughs) back for Easter. I said, look, fine. Oh, yeah. That'll be fine. (laughs) And um, what happened was is that I think – Therese said to her mum and dad, I'll, I'll, I'll stay here for three or four weeks. And she had a flight booked back, booked to come back to London, which she tried to change. 
She was flying with Emirates. Emirates didn't pick up the phone to change her flights. And so the morning that she was meant to be leaving, she said, she thought, oh, I, I'm not going to, I'll just let the flight slide. It was only 500 bucks. The flight it was pretty cheap at the time. The morning that she was meant to leave, she actually woke up and thought, I'm getting on the fly and saying, this is bad. She had this kind of weird little yeah. premonition. Well, it was it was those days where like every couple of hours, it seemed like the news was just like everyone, I think, was stuck to their news apps or, you know, reading the news as soon as they woke up. And I was like waking up in the morning. In fact, I was barely sleeping. So I was reading the news overnight as well. And it was just r- ramping up and up and up and up. And I woke up that morning that my flight was, due, you know, due to take off and, the news out of Australia was that they had um, then declared the entire world as like a red do not travel zone, which sounds like, I don't know, it's become so normalised now, but you think back to a year ago, that was just like catastrophic. It was like the apocalypse. It was just crazy. And my mum told me, she said, look, um, her um, business partner's husband uh, was a member of the military and like word on the street like in the military circles was that the borders were about to close and I'm like that can't possibly happen like we're in Australia our borders don't close um, but my mom's like that's what she's saying and so I just thought oh my god like if the borders are about to close and I'm not gonna be able to get out and so I which turned out to be exactly what happened um, but luckily I got on that flight and the next day I was the only Australian on that flight that I could tell I mean everyone around me was speaking in European languages and with English accents um, so there was this massive exodus of people trying to get home back to Europe and the UK and I was like the only Australian that I could like see um, and uh, yeah I got I left Australia about 12 hours before they closed the borders so I was like just you know, by the skin of my teeth. So we then, um, luckily, we were reunited. That was, you know, far luckier than a lot of other couples um, that were separated, you know. And and still are separated in cases. For sure. And we spent 10 weeks um, in lockdown at Nick's parents' house, which was uh, an interesting 10 weeks. (laughs) 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 Uh, And then we... Well, we managed to get back into France. We managed to get back into France. So we hadn't been able to get to France because of the EU border closures and then things were looking like they might relax a little bit. As Nick kind of alluded to before, he wanted to kind of support his parents during, you know, the the lockdown anyway. So we um, got some paperwork together to prove that our boat was in France and that, you know, we lived on our boat and basically we prepared ourselves to, like, plead our case at at the border. Um, Luckily, they let us in. So we, you know, were very grateful that they they agreed that we were allowed to be let into France because at the time the borders were still closed. And they were turning people away at the border. Yeah, the person before us was turned away. So that wow. really kind of got us nervous. Um, and then we made a back to our boat in May and we got back to our boat just thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe that we're back here. And then... Well, what happened was, that, so I think we got back to the boat at the end of May. And at the time in France, the legislation was you couldn't go more than 50 kilometres by boat. So we knew we could sail but out of the marina, but we had to come back to the marina. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then that was, I think, the 20-something of May. The 2nd of June, the French went, ah, oh, do what you want. So we, we literally then realised that we, we could sail home. Yeah. Um, and with everything, you know, it tends to be that in warmer months, the COVID rates were dropping. So we sailed and we got kind of through you know june july august just sailing around a really beautiful part of the world 
And then by the end of August, things were getting bad again. The rates were going back up. And so we managed to get to the Channel Islands, Little Islands, um, off the coast of France, which are the UK, uh, well, the UK and the Channel is part of some part of Britain in some way or other. We had to quarantine there, went back to the UK again um, in September and sold the boat literally in the 10 days that we were in the UK. At this point, the UK are talking about closing the borders again. So we then got on a plane, packed up, pack, packed up a rucksack and went to a Greek island for three months. We're like, we don't want to spend autumn like, <laughs> another in London with Nick's parents again. Like, as much as we loved spending time with them, we thought that might yeah. kind of break all of us. So, so we were like, where can we go that's nice? So, yeah, we spent three months on a Greek island just editing all the content that we created. And then this was kind of like we were in October, November. And, and then the Greek island went into lockdown yeah. as well. So but that was okay. So then we had to try and get back to Australia and they weren't letting anyone in. The flights were... There was there were very few places on flights, and still there are still forty four thousand Australians stranded overseas wow. who can't get back because the caps on uh, on entrance because of quarantine. And out of some absolute miracle, we got on one of those flights. We got on a flight. We did our two weeks in quarantine, and we've been able to go sailing again. So we've literally had so many lucky breaks, mm-hmm. and, and we do realise how absolutely fortunate we are to be in a country which has almost zero restrictions on travel or movement of people. Within the country, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we've been really lucky. Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's amazing. Um yeah, I'm glad you guys were able to to be together and that you got lucky and sounds like a, a lot of different points during the year. Yeah, I was in I was in uh, traveling throughout Southeast Asia at the beginning of 2020 and then I was in Bali in March when it was kind of getting bad. In one kind of funny anecdote, you mentioned like the the guy at the marina wouldn't shake your hand. I was <laughs> in Bali, I was at this gym doing a group workout class. And I rem- like the guy that I was sharing the barbell with, I like introduced myself and I was like, oh, hi, like I'm Eric. And he was like, we're, we're not supposed to shake hands. And I was like, I was like, oh, okay. But then I'm thinking in my head, like we're picking up the same barbell, like the whole <laughs> class together. Like it's basically the same thing. But anyway, um, yeah, but then, yeah, luck. I was, I was uh, really fortunate too. Like I think um, like in the US, like, we banned incoming flights from Europe, I think it was. But then, like, so I didn't book a plane ticket home, like, that weekend because flight prices, prices, like, spiked up back to the U.S., you know, thousands of dollars. But I waited just, like, a few days after that and then got really lucky. I think I was one of the last flights, like, through Australia back to the U.S. So, yeah, yeah I'm okay. yeah, I'm really, yeah, really grateful and just, yeah, really thankful the, the way that it worked out. Um, so, so Ruby Rose, um, two, can you kind of talk about what's, what's going on there? Like you, you mentioned, you know, based on kind of the review videos, you, you were set up with, with the catamaran builder. What's, what's kind of the story there? So yeah, we were doing these review videos, everyone knew the internet was kind of like a light with the fact we were looking for a boat and it, you know, so we'd done all these reviews, nothing was quite right for us. And we got talking to this Australian company called Seawind. Seawind have been building catamarans for 30 years. And they have, they've got a few models. They've got two models on the market that probably was over a lot of interest to us. One was a 42-foot catamaran and the other one's a 50-foot catamaran. 
the 42 one, very slightly too small for what we plan on doing, which is essentially through the Panama Canal and going to live remotely in the South Pacific. The 50 foot foot one was too expensive. So, you know, a little bit like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, like nothing was quite right. But they said, look, we've got a 45 foot one on the drawing board. And, you know, your reviews are going really well. You've got a lot of input to give us as to what the perfect boat is going to be for you. So why don't we just form a partnership with you? We're building the boat. We know how to build boats. Um, but your input in certain aspects of the liverboard qualities of this boat would be really useful to us. Plus, you know, if we're in partnership together, you can showcase the boat, blah, blah, blah. And we went, yeah, of course. So we, I've got a, you know, we've both got an interest in, in, in the design of the, the, the vessels that keep us safe as we sail around the world. So we kind of went into this partnership in November 2019 to, to kind of like give them input in, in how this new boat should be kind of like, you know, the internal fittings of it. And COVID hit. Uh, they are a pretty small manufacturer. They're not one of the big production manufacturers. They, were, they produce six to 12 boats a year of each model. So, you know, we were talking to them and I said, look, the internet at the time was clamoring for our decision on what we were going to buy What our, after reviewing all these catamarans. Um, they predicted that they would sell 12 boats. They said, look, we will sell 12 of these boats um, in year one. So between you announcing this boat that you're buying, which was in July 2020, and your boat being launched, which is in December 2021, so we're looking at 16 months, we reckon we'll sell 12. That'll be it. And then, you know, then we're, we're kind of cool with that. <clears throat> we announced the boat, uh, I think, the 8th of July uh, 2020. Within a week, they'd sold 30 they've now sold 55 and the only reason the boat the the, the sales have slowed down is because you've now got to wait five years to get one of these boats it's like trying to get a playstation 5 you can't get one Um, you can't buy you know you can't buy them from scalpers you they won't you can't buy your place in the queue and so they i remember phoning up uh, our, well, he's our friend now, Jay, who kind of like works with Seawind. He's the European marketing, he's the marketing manager for Seawind kind of the, the, the weekend after. And I'm like, how's it going? And I thought he'd be like super pleased. He's like, I've got three and a half thousand emails to answer this morning. Thanks. To, <laughs> uh, so like, I better get thanks on. Very much. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> but you know, and, but they are, the thing about Seawind is I, I'm not sure a lot of the sailing industry is run in a bit like US politics by old white guys with a very entrenched way of looking at how life should work. And again, a bit like US politics, there's a lot of new blood coming through, progressives. And it's the same throughout the world. You look at any any kind of like any field, there are progressives, younger, younger progressives that come through that understand the market better than the older guys do. And I say guys because it is 99% of them are old white guys. Seawind is run by a very progressive team of younger managers. I mean, Richard Ward, who is a CEO, is kind of like he's 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 got so much experience, and he's but he's got enough he's got enough experience to kind of delegate the stuff that he is not as good at, like the marketing side, to these to progressives. So we ended up working with a team of like 30, 40 something um, progressive guys who understood the internet, understood the power of social media marketing. In a, in a in a field which is run by people that don't see the value of social media 
influencers. I mean, I don't really like the term influencers, but, you know, that's what it is. And it had never been tested before. So, you know, I think at the time I had a meeting with our sale maker yesterday, and even he said to me, he said, when Seawin told us what they were doing with you, we just thought, you know, that's a big old risk you're taking, you know, with essentially an un, an unfounded quantity at that level. And then, of course, you know, they've got 55 holes now ordered. They literally yesterday opened a massive new factory in Vietnam to, to just ramp up production. And the rest of the sailing market, you know, the brokers are just gone nuts, just chasing their tails thinking, Christ, what do we do now? You know, the thing about, as you can imagine, 50, 45 foot catamarans, they're not cheap. And there's a, there's a finite number of people that are going to buy these boats. So to suck up 55 of those people makes the mark, the pool of people left pretty small. Obviously, this has been compounded by COVID. There's the boat shows. People have just turned completely to online reviews. So there was this kind of aligning of the stars where brokers couldn't get to their customers. Customers couldn't get to the brokers. The only repository of information was the internet. We had a monopoly on the internet reviews before COVID. And then you've got this kind of announcement in July that we are signed up with the partner with, with the Sea Wind. They then sell 55 hulls and the rest of the market are like WTF. Like, how has this happened? Like, how of like these this cockney tosser and this beautiful Australian girl managed to kind of like upend the market? And that that's where we are now. Um it's it's a very strange time for the for the whole yachting market in itself. Um, we have obviously played a small part in in those changes. The changes are ongoing, and we are pretty excited about where we see it going over the next two to five years. Absolutely, that's that's amazing. That's that's great. That's crazy. Um, so what what are y'all's like personal future plans? Plan is to to lay low in, in Australia then until the boat's finished in December and then are you able to set sail again or is that kind of the, the general plan? I think that um, one thing we've all learned from the last 12 months is not to make any plans anymore. Um, we've learned that. So we don't have any firm plans. We are in Australia at the moment. We will be here for... A little while we don't know exactly we're still waiting to hear when Australian borders might reopen perhaps you know obviously the vaccine rollout has big implications for travel so you know we have a wish list of things that we'd like to do this year we'd like to, our boat is being built by an Australian company but the factory itself is in Vietnam um, they've been in Vietnam for about eight years so uh, we visited the factory a couple of years ago um, but we really want to get back to the factory in Ho Chi Minh City um, to observe the, the build film parts of the build um, and be involved like to that extent so you know one thing on our wish list this year particularly towards the end of this year is to get to Vietnam um, for the build not sure how realistic that is. Um, and, you know, there are boat shows going ahead this year in the US um, later in the year. We Normally, in a normal year, we would attend them. Um, so that would be good if we could get there. And uh, we are hopefully going to kind of take delivery of the boat in December. We had a phone call with um, Sea Wind only 
yesterday and they said they're still very much on track at least that's one you know thing that hasn't actually shifted due, due to the pandemic that their timelines haven't haven't shifted at all so you know but there's obviously implications for how we take delivery about our new boat um if the vietnamese borders are open then we can take delivery in vietnam if they're closed and or if the surrounding countries are closed because Vietnam itself doesn't have much sailing um, to be had, so we would have to go to kind of Thailand or Malaysia, Indonesia, the countries that traditionally have a, a kind of more enjoyable sailing ground. Um, if those countries are closed, then there's no much, you know, there's no point in taking deli- delivery of the boat in Vietnam. So we have to basically wait until the end of the year to see how it's all going to pan out. Um, we can ship the boat somewhere. Uh, that is what a lot of sea wind customers do because a lot of them are European or American or Australian. So they ship the boat from Vietnam back to wherever it is that they live. And that's not our preference, but it looks like that might be likely. But the shipping companies are saying that they can't essentially commit to any particular dates or routes or costs at the moment because, you know, their schedules have been completely just wiped clean and they have to just play everything by year. And if there is demand, you know, if, if, for example, Sea Wind have like 10 boats that need to be shipped to Miami, which I think is the case at the moment, then they can kind of, the shipping companies can work with that, but they can't work with just like one customer, like wanting their boat shipped from we'll Miami. So there's a lot of moving parts. We will have to work it out. But um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. We're going to have to be flexible and uh, just stay kind of very flexible and willing to, to go with the flow, I think. But nonetheless, very exciting times. At the end of the year, either way, we'll be moving on to Ruby Rose 2 and kind of living on board, sailing around. Somewhere. Filming. Don't know where, but that's what's happened. I'm perfect. I'm hoping that we're anchored off like Koh Tao with a Chang in one hand and <laughs> <laughs> eating a pad thai out of a banana leaf while lamenting what the hell happened for the last two years. So that's that's the vision. I think if you work towards that vision, and obviously you're welcome on board. We'll, 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 <laughs> Thank you. I love it. I love that vision. And yeah, yeah, I'll be following along. I, I, I hope that it hope that it works out. Cool. All right, guys, last question for you. And then we can uh, wrap it up here. I wanted to ask about like daily habits. So I've been trying to incorporate this more into the podcast. It's a topic that's really interesting to me personally, hopefully the listeners also get some good kind of, you know, advice or some insight from it. But what would you say is maybe a new uh, daily habit that has had like a positive impact uh, on your life just just recently? Um, I think it's what I would say. I, this, I, just recently, I said this to Teresa about an hour ago, so it's pretty recent. <laughs> um, <laughs> she lost it recently. <laughs> Hold my beer. Um, I've kind of, I've got to the point now where I don't think I can sleep properly unless I'm on a boat. I think so. Basically, for me, um, habits that form are to do with and this ties into the whole the threads that you've asked about this entire interview with how we adapt to life living together all the time. Now, I've kind of I don't I'm not an insomniac, but I've kind of like you know people are meant to anthropologically sleep in two parts. You're not meant to sleep the entire night through. It's a it's a construct from Victorian era to try and make you more efficient. So if you read back to the Middle Ages, you'd have big sleep and little sleep because that's the way your natural cycle works. So I've always kind of like just got on with it and thought, well, that's that's the way your natural cycle occurs. So I, I tend to go to bed at, say, 10, 11, get up at 3, stay up till 5, go back to bed. And that's big sleep, little sleep. 
That, from a routine point of view, means that Therese, I'm up for a couple of hours in the middle of the night, normally answering emails. Therese goes to bed earlier than I do and reads a book. I go to sleep at lunchtime after this interview. I'm going to go and have my little nap. Um, And I guess that those routines kind of give us, it kind of like feeds back into that, how do we keep our own space? So how we, how my routines are really based around kind of sleeping in a non-conventional way. Now that's also ties in with how we, how I sleep when we're on passage, where we can only sleep for three hours in any one shot. And when we're at anchor, to be up for a couple of hours at night just to keep an eye on the boat is also a good thing. So it's that I think is probably the thing that defines our my routines personally more than anything else at the moment is my sleep patterns. Yeah, I, I don't have any new habits because I tend to have, you know, stick in my ways a little bit for, for a long time. But one thing that I started doing when we moved onto the boat, which I hadn't really done much before, is um, doing workouts. I said before that I um, did yoga on the boat, I, you know, every morning. Um, or actually, sometimes it works in the afternoon one is having a daily nap. Um, I do a workout and I either, you know, just do some yoga or I do some strength training or HIIT or whatever. And I was never like a gym bunny when I was living on land by any stretch but I find that that kind of physical exercise once a day and as I said I don't it's not like I do it for hours on end like half an hour 45 minutes and I'm, I'm good it helps me a lot with my stress levels it helps me like it's, it forces me to take a break from the computer it kind of forces you to be present um and i mean as a kind of happy byproduct you're doing something good physically for your body so i think that um yeah that is one habit that i i do um and i try and do not every day maybe five times a week and it really really helps me um kind of and my mental well-being so that is something that i'm very attached to awesome I love them. Yeah, I'm a big kind of fitness guy myself. That definitely helps me, yeah, physically and mentally just kind of perform at my best. And I'm also a huge fan of naps. So I, I like that as, as, <laughs> as well. <laughs> awesome. All right. Nick and Teresa, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the show. If people want to connect with you, they want to learn more about your story, where's, where's the best place to find you at online? So just uh, Sailing Ruby Rose is our YouTube channel. So just Google or type into your you know, favorite search engine, Sailing Ruby Rose. We have the YouTube channel. We also have, obviously, social media. Um, and it's the same all across the board. Sailing Ruby Rose. We're very easy to find. Awesome. All right. I'll link them up in the show notes. Cool. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a lot of fun. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Nomad on Fire podcast. If you like the show, if you could do us a huge favor, and please subscribe on whatever platform that you're using to listen to this. If you could also leave a five-star review, that would really help us out and allow the show to be available to more people. See you next time on the Nomad on Fire podcast.